0: Hello, HIROK. Rock. So glad to be with you today. I have a question for you all. Have you ever known someone who insisted that there was only one right way to do something? That their way was not only a good way, or even the best way, but really the only way something should be done? Have you known someone like that? Do you have that person in mind? Yes. If not, you might be that person. Just saying. If that person is someone younger, maybe even your child, it can be heartbreaking. My youngest daughter, Eliza, has autism, and from a very young age, she loved to do puzzles. We started out with the obligatory Melissa and Doug wooden puzzles, but quickly moved on to larger puzzles with far more pieces. She loved doing these puzzles, but they could quickly become frustrating for her as the number of pieces scaled up. I remember trying to show her that it could be easier if we started by framing out all the edge pieces. It's Puzzle Master 101 stuff. But something in her made her say no, and she would disassemble all the edge pieces that I tried to put together. She had a way she was going to do it, and that was that period. Sometimes she would even become so frustrated with the puzzle that she would start to rip pieces apart. But it didn't matter. She was going to do the puzzle her way or not at all. Like I said, it can be heartbreaking. But what if it's a friend or a peer who insists that there's only one way to do something? With a child, it can be heartbreaking, but with a friend or coworker, it can become a little more frustrating. Hopefully, you can just walk away. Um, How's that working out for you, good? Then keep it up. You know, I'm gonna head over there and see what they're doing, but you do you. Those interactions can be frustrating, but what's really maddening is when there is someone who has authority over us and they insist that there's only one way to do something, especially when their way is needlessly complicated, inefficient, or maybe even just wrong. I can still remember an early childhood experience, third grade, I think. The teacher showed us how to solve a set of math problems and then gave us a sheet of problems to do on our own. And she insisted, as always, that we show our work. No problem. She demonstrated a particular way to solve the problems, but I had learned cross multiplication, and it was so much easier and quicker than the multi-step process she was doing on the board. Let's say that eight candy bars cost $12. How much do six candy bars cost? Easy peasy. Eight candy bars over $12 equals six candy bars over X dollars. Solve for X. Well, $12 times six candy bars is 72. Divide 72 by eight, and the answer is nine. Six candy bars cost nine dollars. Done. But my teacher gave me a C for my homework, even though every answer was correct. What she said was to show my work, but what she really meant was to do it her way. She wanted me to first calculate the cost of each individual candy bar, then multiply the individual cost for a candy bar times six candy bars. Well, that's one way to do it, but my way was simpler and fast and just as valid. But none of that mattered to her. She insisted that I had to do it her way, period. Her way was the only way. It wasn't fair. It didn't even make sense, but she had the authority and I couldn't do anything about it. I consoled myself with the realization that it might be good to learn such lessons at an early age. After all, life is filled with people who insist that there is only one right way to do something, that their way is the only way. My way or the highway. Make sure you put your cover sheet on those TPS reports. Maybe you've had teachers like that. Maybe you've had a boss or a supervisor like that. Maybe your parents were like that, or maybe they still are insisting that you make certain life choices or choose a career or choose a spouse according to their exact standards. Their way is the only way. Or else. And it's not just at an individual level. Our postmodern lives have been filled with examples of entire organizations or institutions or bureaucracies that insist that things have to be done in a certain way, even if it makes little or no sense. It's especially frustrating when those same organizations fail to follow their own rules, like when police officers who are sworn to uphold justice use their authority to commit injustice, or when the church insists on strict moral standards but then attempts to cover up the failures of its own leaders. Why should anyone insist that there is only one way, their way? and use their authority to force others to comply with standards that even they fail to uphold. And into this world steps Jesus, who, as we read earlier, insists that Jesus is not only the way, but the only way. There may be many religions, but there is only one way to God, and that is through Jesus. It doesn't matter how loving you are, how generous you are, much integrity you have, if Jesus isn't your co-pilot, then you're going the wrong way. Even people who are fans of Jesus might be a little put off by this laser-like focus on Jesus. I mean, right now we're in a series which we're unpacking the Apostles' Creed line by line. This creed is perhaps the most ancient pledge of faith in the history of the church, going all the way back to baptisms during the time of the Roman emperors. It is a pledge recited in churches all around the world by all kinds of people in all languages. When you look at the creed, you can see that it is organized into three sections. And for the past three weeks, Pastor Dave has been walking us through the first part that starts with, I believe in God the Father Almighty. The second section is about Jesus, and the final section is about the Holy Spirit and the Church—Father, Son, and Spirit— The ancient church divided this creed into 12 articles of faith. Now, you would think that each person of the Trinity would get four articles apiece. But no, Jesus gets six out of the 12. Why is Jesus so greedy for the spotlight? Even in the church, we seem obsessed with Jesus. Even the name of our faith is all about Jesus, Christianity. In the scene we read about earlier, Jesus' own disciples seem to be put off with all of this focus on Jesus. It starts with Jesus telling his disciples that he will soon be leaving them, but with a promise to return to them so they might all be reunited. They seemed confused and anxious, so Jesus assures them that they know the way, to which Thomas, one of the disciples, responds, Lord, we don't know where you are going, so how can we know the way? And that's when Jesus says his famous words, I am the way, the truth, and the life. You know the way. I am the way, Thomas. Follow me. I am the way. The Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. If you follow me, you will see the Father because I am in the Father and the Father is in me. Jesus is a paragon of humility. Story after story, interaction after interaction, we see Jesus serving and loving and lifting people up. So in this moment, why does Jesus make it all about him? If the church seems to be obsessed with Jesus, it's something we seem to have learned from Jesus himself. And this seeming obsession isn't something new. It goes all the way back to the Apostles' Creed. It goes all the way back to the Scriptures themselves. And that's why we see in the Creed our line for today. I believe in Jesus Christ, His only Son, our Lord. In a world where we live by the maxim to speak your truth, it sounds heretical to claim that Jesus is the only way. And people are often shocked to learn that it was Jesus himself who made this claim when he said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus speaks as if he has authority. He's not claiming to speak his truth. He's claiming to speak the truth. Some of you probably have questions or objections at this point. So did the disciples. One of them spoke up and asked what the others were probably thinking. Lord, show us the Father and that will be enough for us. Just show us God and we'll be happy, Jesus. But Jesus' answer probably made it harder rather than easier for them. Philip wanted to see God, to see the Father. Well, Jesus answered, Don't you know me, Philip? Anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. In other words... If you've seen me, you've seen God. That has to be the most arrogant, presumptuous, egotistical, boastful, self-congratulating, narcissistic thing that Jesus could have said, unless it is true. And that seems to be what Jesus is claiming when he says, Believe me when I say that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or at least believe on the evidence of the works themselves. And that is some of what we'll be doing over the next five weeks as we continue with what the Creed has to say about who Jesus is, what he has done, and what he will do in the future. I know that for me, this exclusive claim of Jesus was the central question as I was coming to faith. I had so many questions, so many objections, but if Jesus was who he said he was, If he was truly and uniquely God the Son, if he had authority to be called Lord as in the Bible and reflected in the Creed, then that would be enough. Even if I still had a thousand questions, and I still do, if Jesus was who he said he was, then I would follow him. I would almost have to. In fact, my whole faith journey really started with that very question. In my first year of high school, I decided to get a job because I wanted to buy a computer. I took a job at McDonald's because they were the only place that would hire me, and they were within walking distance. On a typical night, I would go to track practice, then go to work, which was on my way to home. And after that, after I'd finished that, I would walk home, usually in the dark. And those walks ended up being a time of reflection. I'd think about my life. I'd ask the big questions like, who am I, really? What is life about? What is my life about? And as I struggled with these questions, one night I stopped and I looked up in the sky and I asked, God, if you're really there, Jesus, if you are really God, then show me. In my mind, faith meant shutting off your brain and believing what doesn't make sense. But I couldn't do that. Wouldn't do that. If I was going to believe, I needed God to show me. If Jesus showed up, it wouldn't just satisfy my intellectual curiosity. It would make a difference in my life. I would follow him. I didn't know what that meant at that point, but I knew that I was asking for something that would require a commitment from me. Four years later, in college, I was seeing the fruit of that prayer. In high school, God had provided my best friend, Rob, who turned out to be a Christian, And in college, I kept running into Christians, not that there were a lot of Christians on the campus at Carnegie Mellon, but I seemed to keep running into them. And one of them invited me to Friday night gathering of InterVarsity Christian Fellowship. I met so many people whose lives had been impacted by Jesus, and some who, like me, were asking big questions. I had never met people as real and as loving as they were. And they welcomed my questions. They gave me books and book recommendations to explore my questions. I read books like Paul Little's Know What You Believe and Know Why You Believe. I read Josh McDowell's Evidence That Demands a Verdict. And I probably, my favorite of all, I read Between Heaven and Hell by Peter Craft, a philosophy professor from Boston College. That book was especially interesting as it featured a fictional conversation between John F. Kennedy, Aldous Huxley, and C.S. Lewis as they all happened to die on the same day. JFK plays the role of a secular humanist, Aldous Huxley is an atheist, and C.S. Lewis is a Christian. What if in the initial moments of the afterlife, before anything could be known, those three met and had a conversation? Wouldn't that be interesting? Well, it really was. So up and down, left and right, I saw that there might not be proof But there were intelligent and deep questions, and many of my objections, especially my objection to the objectional notion that Jesus was the way, could be addressed. When Jesus claims to be the way, I was objecting because I was assuming that there had to be a way, perhaps many ways, and so it was offensive that Jesus should try to corner the market. Why should Jesus or his followers have a monopoly on God? But as I explored these books and these relationships, I began to wonder if I had it all wrong. Maybe instead of being offended by Jesus being the way, perhaps I should be amazed that there is any way at all. I mean, why should I assume that there must be many ways and that God is obliged to sanction each one of them? It seems just as likely, maybe even more likely, that there was no way and God made a way through Jesus. So that's why Jesus is the way. It's not like Jesus came in to kill all the competition. It's more a matter of Jesus providing a way forward when we, like the disciples, had no idea where to go. Most of us know John 3.16. If we don't know it, we've at least heard it or seen someone at a sports game holding up a sign. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. John 3.16 is a wonderful encapsulation of the love of God. But consider the underlying assumption. The world was already perishing. It's like we're all in over our heads, drowning, and God chooses to make a way at great cost. God sends Jesus, his one and only son, to be the way back home. It's not that there were already many ways back to God and Jesus came along to shut them all down. No, there was no way, but Jesus made a way. I was complaining that there wasn't more than one way when I really should have been thankful that there was any way at all. The other night I sent one of my kids $50 over Venmo. What if instead of being grateful, that child had been angry that I hadn't sent that I hadn't sent it through Zelle or direct deposit or a handwritten check. They could complain about the way I sent the money or they could be grateful that I had sent money at all. Honestly, I don't pretend to have provided any real answers here. I've shared my own objections in the way I found going forward. I've shared some books that I found helpful and I'd love to have conversations to explore other ideas if you want to hit me up. But I don't pretend to offer any conclusive answers. Only helpful ways to explore this question. But if you question or object to the idea that Jesus is the only way, then know that you and I would have been in solidarity. More importantly, you were in good company with the disciples in John 14. What might be more surprising to you is that you are actually in good company with Jesus himself. Jesus himself had the same objection as you do. On the night he was betrayed, Jesus went off to pray in the garden at Gethsemane, and we're told that he took his three closest disciples with him for support. Why was Jesus so distressed? Why did he need their support so badly? He told them, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. What could possibly bring Jesus to such a low point? Was it the betrayal of one of the disciples? Was it his impending arrest? Was it the trial, beatings, and crucifixion that was to come? No doubt that was part of it, but certainly not all. As Jesus went further into the garden, he fell to the ground, begging his father to spare him from the events about to unfold. Abba, Father, he prayed. Abba is an intimate term like saying, Dad, Jesus prayed, Abba, Father, everything is possible for you. Take this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. What is this cup to which Jesus refers? Whatever it is, it sounds awful, and it is. The image of the cup can sometimes refer to good things like we studied in Psalm 23 this spring, where it says, my cup overflows. But the most common image of a cup in the Old Testament is a reference to a cup of wrath. It is a cup filled with all the consequences of humanity's sins. Like a cup filled with wine, drinking will make one stagger and fall, but far less pleasant. One of the most famous references to this cup comes from the prophet Isaiah, where he says, Awake, awake, rise up, Jerusalem, you who have drunk from the hand of the Lord the cup of his wrath, you who have drained to its dregs the goblet that makes people stagger. This is undoubtedly the cup to which Jesus refers when he says, Abba, Father, everything is possible for you. Take this cup from me. Yet not what I will, but what you will. Jesus knew what lay ahead for him. In what is a great cosmic mystery to us, God in the person of Jesus was going to take on all the consequences of our sin and rebellion. Where there was no way, Jesus was being called to make a way. In a passage following the one about the cup of wrath, Isaiah tells us about the suffering servant who would ultimately drink that cup of wrath. This is how the prophet describes this drinking of the cup of wrath. Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering, yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we are healed." As Jesus prayed, he knew that this was the way. But in this moment of human frailty, he didn't want to do it. He didn't want to drink the cup. When Jesus said he was the way, the truth, and the life, he didn't say it out of arrogance or glee. He was saying something that he knew to be true, even though he wished it could be otherwise. Yes, Jesus wanted to provide a path to reconciliation with God, but he absolutely dreaded the cost. Abba, Father, he cried, everything is possible for you. Take this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. If you object to the idea that Jesus is the only way, if you wish that there was some other way, then know this. Jesus felt the same as you. More than anyone, Jesus wished there was another way. Three times in the garden that night, he begged the Father for there to be another way. But the implication is clear. Jesus was the only way. And that path would take him to the cross. Jesus desperately wanted there to be another way, but even more than that, he wanted the Father's will to be done. And so there is a way, and that way is Jesus. I don't pretend that this is the answer you were looking for. I don't claim that it will resolve all your questions and objections, but I know that this was deeply meaningful to me, and it is deeply meaningful to me, That Jesus wanted there to be another way. But I'm even more thankful that when the Father made it clear that Jesus was the way, Jesus said yes. As I said before, we have six weeks to explore what the Creed affirms about who Jesus is, what he has done, and what he promises to do in the future. One sermon will not be enough and all six weeks will not be enough. But I or any of the other pastors would love to walk with you in this journey. If you have questions, ask them. If you have objections, express them. In a few moments, we will have a time for prayer and reflection. Express your honest questions and objections to God. That's what Jesus did. In the end, God may not give us a definitive answer why Jesus is the only way, at least this side of eternity. Even so, let us never forget to thank God that there is a way at all. Amen.